Hello everyone and welcome to the Jim Croft Podcast, where we unravel the links between entrepreneurship and the creative arts. Today, I'm thrilled to present Boris L. Dagson, a pioneering German artist and agitator. Boris's work has exploded into global recognition this year, particularly after winning and then boldly rejecting the Sony World Photography Awards. It thrust his recent AI-generated images to the forefront of discussions around the topic of AI. Now, I've known Boris for over a decade and have greatly enjoyed seeing his splendidly tall frame towering above the crowd and bopping away at several of my gigs. Welcoming him onto the show was a moving moment in our friendship and to celebrate it, the team went full Joe Rogan on the film production. So please do pop over to my YouTube channel if you'd like to check it out. Now, as an artist and a professor, Boris is uniquely placed to explore the emerging role, dangers and opportunity of AI. Indeed, this year he's emerged as a figurehead for artists worldwide, with the Sony controversy gaining ubiquitous coverage from The Guardian to Al Jazeera. So, whether you're an artist navigating this brave new world of the AI landscape, or you're in business and working out how to implement it, this episode is for you. I'm your host, Jim Croft. If you're ready, then let's dive in. And so, Mr. No, I should say, Herr Boris L. Dagson, how are you, man? I'm fine. It's good seeing you again so, after such a long time. It's been so long. So when was it that we first met, Boris? That must be 10, 12 years ago um, through an online platform that tried to sell contemporary art. And they had uh, you employed to make studio visits and to show how artists work. And you came to my place and you created an awesome video. Well, you know, I always remember it for three reasons. And the first one was it was to, to meet you because it was the, 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 the genius of hospitality. Ben Ockrey talks about the genius of hospitality. And I just always remember how welcome you made me feel. I, it was never like I'm working for you or anything like this. And you were very quick to suggest, well, we should have a bottle of wine afterwards. And then it was to witness your process, which, of course, we'll talk about in which was a, such a sort of inspiring um, thing to see firsthand, which we'll talk about during the podcast. And the third thing that I want to say is, do you remember this? Yes, <laughs> I gave it to you. I had two of them. Yeah. So what we're looking at is the essential crazy wisdom, which is by Wes Scoop Niska. And Boris and I, after I completed the job and Boris completed yeah. the work of art that he was creating, we had a long chat and we, t we had a bottle of wine and Boris went into, was guiding me in, at a very critical time in my life. And I always remember this, this being such an impactful conversation. And you gave me this book and we yes. just met. And see what happened. Yeah, I, I'm following your post and um, you became some kind of like mentor and motivator for artists. And uh, I just like what you do. I think it's very important that we talk about those things and I hope we talk about them more. So for all of them who, are not, who don't know about this book, this is just like secondhand. It's from the late 60s, early 70s, and it's a combination of wisdom coming from all cultures and religious backgrounds plus artists. And that is what makes it crazy. And the combination to show that there is a parallel between 
Dadaism <laughs> and Eastern philosophy is what I just loved. Yeah. So I just opened it at a random page and I just thought, okay, I'm just going to read whatever I read okay. to you. And the reason I'm reading this is simply because it's underlined by Boris L. Dagson sometime 10 years I ago. I do this with my books. Yeah. <laughs> and it says, he comes very close to Zen when he refuses to search for truth and decides to have breakfast instead. Yes. Comment. Well, it is the absurdity of life. I love um, koans in Zen Buddhism. You get a question like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And logically, you can't solve. And what you need to find is a different approach. And one of the possible approaches to respond to a Zen koan is not with your brain, but with a movement, with a performance. And I love the artistic wisdom in that. Okay. And I was just checking that camera because I'm always forgetting to turn cameras on. I'm not, I'm not losing <laughs> hair, Boris L. Dagson. And, but the funny thing is, okay, so two, yeah. two takeaways from that. One is that when you talk about sort of crazy wisdom, this is actually something that I genuinely associate with Boris L. Dagson. And we'll talk about how that has manifested in your life over the course of the podcast. But also that was very lovely what you said about something that's very important to me, which is to try and pass on what I've learned so far over 20 years into yeah. the arts onto other artists. But what I love about the fact that you gave me this book was that, and the conversation we had is that you were seeking to, to guide. And one of the things that's given me so much reward as a friend has been seeing how this capacity to guide and to uh, pull conversation and debate out of the void by challenging reality and literally confronting it in this sort of spirit of gleeful disruption is something that I think you've always been doing, but of course it's recently, it has exploded onto the international sort of level. And we'll go into how and why that's happened a bit later, but I just want to know, how are you at the moment? Because I, I just want to know, before we talk about the stories, like there can't be many people who over the last month have gone from being a well-known artist to suddenly having 800 million impressions on their work and being at the forefront of the most topical debate that there has been for decades about AI. And that must be an absolute exhausting and world-flipping experience. So just how are you? Forgetting all the story and the rest of it, how are you doing, Boris? Wow. I'm okay. I uh, took a break two weeks ago, went to the photography festival in Arles in the south of France, like I do every July, and didn't do that much. Mm -hmm. And that was really recharging my batteries. But since I've been back, <laughs> it, it started again. Like it comes from all sides. Sometimes I get like five inquiries daily. Mm -hmm. Or people send me interviews to ask if they can use certain quotes or just any kind of questions regarding workshops, regarding presentations, regarding exhibitions, regarding whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm very thankful um, that these doors have been opened mm -hmm. through the whole event. Uh, it was like, um, you have this tunnel vision. <laughs> you just can move forward. 
Mm-hmm. And at the height of the media frenzy, I had like five or six hours sleep per night mm-hmm. because you are so much full of adrenaline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're <laughs> trying to react. And uh, I had inquiries every 10 minutes mm-hmm. on all channels. Mm-hmm. Yeah? LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Messenger, emails, telephone. And then you don't want to miss an important uh, inquiry. Mm-hmm. Once I got an email from New York Times at midnight asking, can we print your image? Can you tell us in the next two hours? And that is something you would not like to miss. Yeah, I would have mm-hmm. never expected that New York Times is printing my image. I saw this one. But what is happening is you just go there and go there and go there. Mm-hmm. You fall into bed at midnight. After five hours, you are wide awake again. Mm-hmm. And you know that in those five hours, your email box has filled up and um, it is um, it was a very intense time I was doing it for three four weeks Mm -hmm. in that pace and um, what else could I have done this is a once in a lifetime moment Mm -hmm. it will not happen again and so when it came I said I'm ready I go in 100% and let's see where it's going to lead me. I still have no idea where it's going to lead me. And I never had an idea where it was going to lead me. When I started with AI, I had no clue what was going to happen a year later. Mm -hmm. But this is always, this is what we can do as artists. We, We start to do something that we love and we hope that somebody out there is going to appreciate it. And when it's truly appreciated, it doesn't matter if it's one person or a hundred or a thousand or a million. And that is the motivation to continue. Mm -hmm. I know 20 years ago when nobody cared for my photography, there was a woman uh, in the United States that had problems in sleeping that was, uh, had a, uh, yeah, she was traumatized. And she said, I am able to sleep again just looking at your images and Mm. she loved them so much. And that really touched me. That was a very positive, beautiful moment. And with the electrician, I had an Italian poet thanking me for the image, saying, I don't care if it's AI or not. It consolidates me, it reminds me of my mom. I live with my mom, she has Alzheimer's. I see her life in the picture and I just wanted to thank you. Mm. So those things are much more important than New York Times arts. Mm. To print your image it's for me something spine tingling because i think sometimes when you're younger as an artist and people say don't quit and tough it out and keep believing <laughs> and all the rest of it and but of course one day as an artist can feel like an eternity it can feel yeah. like a whole universe especially when you're going through difficult situations yeah. or you're struggling with mental demons or your career isn't moving forward and and this is one of like I literally I felt my my spine tingling as you were talking because I just it's to see someone who has walked the path and you're not talking about I mean you know you've had so many breakthroughs I know I know enough about your career to know that it's been you know this gradual manifestation over the years but, but then also I, w- I would question the idea of a breakthrough but let's talk about this oh no I would as well yeah. and, and well I think that's that's quite right but what 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 I mean is to get to the point where the because it's not a just it's not about what happened it's about the why behind what yes. happened and the why behind what happened is all of the 
inquiry and all of the methodology and the searching and the looking into the human condition and into technology and going around the world that has existed for your whole life. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting point to like go uh, okay. back, back to the origin. Okay? I, yeah, I can tell you why I'm being an artist so, so what yes. I became aware of throughout the years and then we can well, also go back to the beginning or do you want to have it chronological? No, if there's something on your mind you go into it. Um, what I found over the years is not that I'm doing art because I want to be loved or I want to be famous or I want to have an exciting life or whatsoever. It is where I get my energy from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Being creative, creating things is giving me energy. And I need that. And I have nothing else that could replace it. For some people, it's climbing, doing some extreme sports, or having a family or whatever. For me, it's creating. That is my electricity, and this mm -hmm. is where I need to plug in. And once you have realized this, there is no way of stopping. And then it doesn't matter if you have feedback or not. And you come from a small dwarf, in mm -hmm. southwest Germany. Yes. And this was your beginning. And so do you remember the call, you know, the calling that took you out on the artistic path? What was the trigger? How did Boris start becoming Boris? Well, um, my family has always been outsiders. They didn't grow up in that area. Um, they just moved there because uh, my dad had a job. Mm -hmm. And then I was born there in the middle of the woods, close to the French uh, border. and never did fit in. I didn't speak the local dialect. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, I found my home in books first mm -hmm. and then in arts. And I was not playing on the street. And that was what interested me. And I continued to read and to read and to read. And later, uh, my mom, they took me to exhibitions. Mm -hmm. On the weekend, they wanted to do something special and they wanted to see exhibitions. I don't think that my parents had really a background and knowledge or something, but they wanted to do that. And it had a huge influence on me. Mm -hmm. This and TV. <laughs> I was watching a lot of TV, too much. Yeah, I've never watched so much TV than when I was a teenager. Um, And it dissolved out of that. And also there had been certain TV series that were important. Um, I studied philosophy. I had two TV series that sparked my interest in philosophy. Which ones? And then a British band. Signore Rossi is looking for no, happiness um, and he never finds it. And the second was a 1930s American series about Charlie Chan the Chinese detective. And he was always quoting Chinese philosophy. Really? And later in my studies, I had like two semesters of Chinese philosophy, talking about Zen. Yeah, it was mm -hmm. basically coming from TV. And a third influence interest for um, philosophy was Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. The British band, I loved what they were doing. It was a Gesamtkunstwerk and they had extended versions where they had people narrating text before. And it was a very weird text. And I wanted to find out what is this text? Where does it come from? That was a Nietzsche quote. Mm -hmm. And that all of those things stuck in my head. So I thought mm, philosophy is something I would like to know more about. And so you set out and the, but this was just the beginning. So one of the things that I find so interesting is that you set out and you studied 
in Germany. Yeah. But this was just the beginning because you also that your your early life took yeah. you to India and to Australia yeah. to Prague to name but a few. And so I just want wonder if you remember the the nature of the call to inquiry to cross across cultures. Um, well, I, I also have to ask to thank others. Um, you need to have people encouraging you. Mm -hmm. Like first thing, my parents, they took me there and they just kind of supported it. Mm -hmm. I had a teacher, an art teacher at school mm -hmm. that supported me. I had two girlfriends that said, it's really great what you're doing. You should continue with this. Mm -hmm. And then later it was a third girlfriend that had the idea of going to India. And I had no clue. I just said, yeah, let's do it. And also let's go to Prague. Um, I've been to Prague before. I loved it. And later I realized that it's like a puzzle. The pieces make sense in hindsight. I grew up in an area in, in Germany that is full of history. There's nothing happening today. But you have a history that goes to the Celtics, to the Romans. You have medieval castles. Uh, you have Baroque churches. You have leftovers and bunkers of World War I and World War II. Mm -hmm. All on top. Mm -hmm. And that feeling of time is something that interested me. And then going and leaving Germany, having this semester in India, which was something I was more or less um, suggested by my partner, later was very, very important for what I was doing in photography and also my approach because um, getting out of your comfort zone, becoming aware that the world is big, that there are mm -hmm. many different ways of believing, working, creating. Um, and this in combination with philosophy, I wanted to find out what is timeless. Yeah, What do mm -hmm. we have in common across times, across cultures? And that human condition is what has been in the center of my work since. Mm -hmm. The the one of the quotations that I love from you was my, pro my approach to photography was psychological and philosophical. It was a journey inside. It was not depicting what everybody sees yeah. in front of them. And this is something that I, I, I find so interesting that the idea that there was something in you that you sensed, but whatever it was, perhaps that you were trying to find and identify within you, it was continually, it seems to be of calling you out. And if, if I may ask, because you talked about these these, um, I think a couple of girlfriends you said, yeah. and it seems to me that in my life, when I look back, it's particularly at sort of critical points. And funnily enough, I, I look back at this moment when I came to you, it was a very critical point because I'd, I'd actually just lost my deal with, with the MI. And I was yeah. in a very sad period. And I was trying to figure out my way to stay an artist. Yeah. And part of that was to learning filming and the rest of it. But I also had this sense that sort of angels exist, some larger and some bigger. And did you have some type of sense of angels? I don't mean in the sort of the, the, fl the fluttering way, but just when you look back and you connect the dots, do you do you sort of see some type of meaning through the threads? Or like, yeah. where does that inquiry into the human spirit, into the nature of time, where does it lead you at this point of life? I know this is a big thing to try and summarize. Well, I, the reason why I studied philosophy and art is I was really interested in the big questions of life. Yeah, mm -hmm. Why are we here? Mm -hmm. What is this all for? Mm -hmm. And I thought I get a question either in the arts or in philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I didn't. But what I learned in philosophy is 
to ask more precisely and to go back to terminology. Uh -huh. um, and then in, in hindsight, it's like you're looking through classes, everything is blurred and becomes more in focus. But only, I guess, if you also do a journey inside. Mm -hmm. You need to become aware of yourself, your motivations. And what I have been doing with students that start to find their path is uh, make an inventory. Um, try to, to find all the artists and artworks that did inspire you. Mm -hmm. If it's music, literature, visual arts, and uh, what you like about them. Write down all the creative practices you had. Yeah? Many write poems and stop. Some play an instrument and stop. Mm -hmm. Others paint and continue. Yeah? Yeah. And why did you start something? Why did you stop something? And then you have this big, big um, map, like things like <laughs> this, you post it, you put it on a table, <laughs> and then you realize Hey, there are connections, yeah? yeah. And these connections have mm -hmm. driven you unconsciously. And at some point in your development, you need to become aware of the connections and turn them consciously into a subject to work on. Mm -hmm. And so you're formulating your patterns out of these, these different aspects and insights and experiences and things that you're trying. One of the things that I find interesting is that you say to people, what did you stop at? Yeah. Which I find very interesting because in the arts, I mean, daily, even people that know they want to do this, they, they stop because it is just so damn hard. And one of the things that I find very moving about your inquiry, your life path, is that it doesn't seem to me that there was any stopping. However, if I was to ask you about okay, I know enough about human nature and especially about artists to know that we damn well struggle. And when we struggle, yeah. it can be a limitless, a limitless <laughs> a, a hole or, or abyss or, and I just wonder, it, like... It is fear, basically. It's, mm -hmm. it's fear that is holding people back. I was brought up with a lot of fear inherited. And my mum as being born during the war or my father as having fought as a soldier in the mm -hmm. war. That's unconsciously. And uh, I became aware of the fear that had, has been passed on to me when I was 35. Before I was just like directing me and I was a very shy student. And I realized then teaching later is what I can do as a professor is take away the fear from students, the fear of not knowing enough, of not having the right gear, of having stupid ideas, of not being able to master the technology, whatever. Mm -hmm. So you take away this fear and then you have an open space for experimentation and the rest is going to happen constantly. And mm -hmm. if I look back into my life, it has been a constant attempt to become aware of the fear it was passed on to me by my parents and ancestors and mm -hmm. fight against them. And mm -hmm. we can later talk about the Sony World Photography Awards. It also happened there. Mm -hmm. There was a moment when I was torn between two options. I remember this. And this is, this for me, <laughs> this is the climax of where yes. I want to get to. Because okay, okay, I, I, yeah. I, on it, but it's so exciting because I think we're just in mm -hmm. like such synergy here. And yeah. I love that advice, Boris, about experimentation as being a pathway to a deeper self-knowledge and a deeper reconnection out of a spiritual rut. I think that's just such a beautiful guidance for people. Because the thing is, I think when you're in some of those darker or more difficult times, 
like the first thing so often people do is they stop doing that which they love doing yeah. because it's not giving them the reward back. But the yeah. thing that you mentioned earlier is that you you drew that energy. You knew that your energy yeah. was coming from the inquiry itself. But the thing is, what you're saying is like, keep experimenting and the experimentation itself will lead you and will become a guide in itself. Yeah. And I find that a very beautiful idea. Um, so in terms of that 35-year-old Boris, you said it was a realization or a revelation that you that you were carrying around a backpack or rather it, right deep inside yeah. you, this, this, this inherited fear. So A, what triggered it to, to the realization? And B, how did you start um, confronting it or looking into it? Um, I had a time between 2003 and, and, and nine when I was living between Australia and Germany. Mm -hmm. I had like eight to 12 months in a place because I fell in love with an Australian artist and then moved between the places. Mm -hmm. And usually I earned my money in Germany as a freelancer mm -hmm. and then spent it in a year in Australia. And then there was the financial crisis 2007, eight. Mm -hmm was impossible. So for the first time I went to Australia with no money. Wow. So I was kind of forced to find a job there and I asked around. And then suddenly I was invited to meet the Dean of the Center for Ideas at the Victorian College of the Arts, which mm -hmm. is like one of the art academies in Australia. Uh -huh. And I started to be a lecturer there. And they just loved it and I loved it. And then I uh, asked um, the Photography Studies College that were teaching photography. And they had problems. It was just luck. Yeah, They had an old teacher who was going to be retired and students who were 18. Mm -hmm. It didn't fit. So they asked me to do something. And the beauty about Australia compared to Germany is that they really give you a chance to show what you can. Mm -hmm. And when it works well, you get more and more offers. So that year when I was in Australia, for the first time I returned to Germany with money. And that was just, <laughs> you, have, you have some situations where you think, okay, now I need to try something new. There's no plan B or um, I need to try something new. If I'm not trying something new, it will stay mm -hmm. as it is. It's, I don't know, it's just sort of it, it, how this aspect in you I find so fascinating because on the one hand, you're like an archetypal disruptor and challenger of convention. And yet on the other hand, you are also very deeply in the dialogue with the arts. There's, you know, you're not one of these sort of like proto-punks who is just out to destroy things like the Joker and Batman. You're all for... Um, communication and so that's such a lovely insight into your story that this part of you that was beginning to start communicating about the ideas and to pass it on was also coming out of a moment of great desperation yes also and and and, and also um i'm having uh how would you call it um I'm not taking bullshit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I realized I'm too old. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Life is fleeting. I'm 53 now. Um, with 30, I would have said, oh, Sony, I don't care. But now I get at a point where if things 
really are wrong and mm -hmm. I see it and it's connected with me. I just speak out openly. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes with age. Also, if you have experienced a lot of drama, which I did mm -hmm. in the years of friends dying, committing suicide, assisted suicide, uh, terminally ill illness, um, at some point you realize it is, we don't have that much time just to Mm -hmm. um, to be quiet about things that are wrong. Mm -hmm. And that comes also with age. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to be very um, outspoken, old guy like from the Muppet Show. Talking, <laughs> talking from the balcony. But, but, but I think your leadership, I think, comes from different different experiences and in different ways in different people's lives. And I feel that someone who is willing to make themselves available to debate, even in the sort of, even in the fires, like you have of recent, is like, it feels to me that this came out of this very long life path that it was, because yeah. it feels built brick by brick and yeah. atom by atom. But before getting to that, thing which is obviously already coming out of you at this point when you're 35 and you're a bit desperate and you're looking for the money and the rest of it i don't feel like we got to the bottom of what the fear was mm -hmm. and how you started looking into the fear because it you you took on the professorship or or, or, or talking um guiding students and being being a lecturer but how did you deal with the internal experience like what was the rupture like what was the feeling that happened when you recognized that you were carrying around this fear. Um, I'm challenging you because I feel like... No, I was, I was at first, I was kind of like also angry, yeah, because I said, this is not my shit. It's not my baggage. Mm -hmm. It's the baggage of my parents. Mm -hmm. And it was their homework. And mm -hmm. they, they had not been able to solve it. Mm -hmm. But later I realized why. <laughs> it's on one hand, it's the time they had been born. Mm -hmm. It's the other hand that quite lately, five, six years ago, I realized they had ADHD. They, they, they did or you did? Both my parents. Uh -huh. Therefore, I have. It's passed on genetically. Mm -hmm. I would have never put myself into that basket. Mm -hmm. I've learned it through my partner, who is a neuropsychologist. Mm -hmm. And since I see it in 80% of my artist friends, we can talk about ADHD and the arts. It's a match. If it works well, it's a perfect match. If it works badly, it can really drag you down. Well, you've described how your hyperfocus you see as yeah. a sort of superpower or an extension of the ADHD. Could you tell us about that? Um, I can, um, but I don't know how much the audience knows about ADHD. It's attention deficit disorder. That means you are not able, like others, to filter what is happening around you. That means some are very uncomfortable in rooms with a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. I can't concentrate on you if everybody's talking in the pub. Or if I'm not really interested or to totally focus what is mm -hmm. happening here. I'm looking everywhere. I see mm -hmm. different things. And But if I really love what I'm doing, I can get into a hyper-focus and that is stronger than an ordinary non-ADHD person has. Mm -hmm. And then I can be really affected, uh, effective. And this is why many people with ADHD are the best as freelancers <laughs> mm -hmm. to do what they love. Mm -hmm. And I have built my life 
to live like this mm -hmm. unconsciously. And uh -huh. I later found out what I have done already is a kind of best practice. <laughs> and um, it is important to become aware of when you are distracted. And it's important to become aware that the hyperfocus can be negative. <laughs> and then you are in a circle and it's very hard to get out. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what happens when you are in that circle? What's the nature of that type of hyper-focus spiral? Well, many people with ADHD really um, love justice. Mm -hmm. And if they are treated unjust, yeah, it's very hard to get the thoughts out of your mind. You get that anger out of your mind. You have of a certain person. Like an obsession on the one thing? It is like this. I once was, was asked to create a, an exhibition in uh, Portugal. I did under hard circumstances. I did a good job. And uh, they owed me money for months. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> And they didn't pay me. They didn't respond to my letters. They didn't respond to anything. I was just left behind. I've, I've done my work and that's it. Yeah, I was getting obsessed about that. I was trying in my head what I could do to that person. <laughs> <laughs> what? Maybe I shouldn't ask you what you were doing exactly, Boris Aldaxon. <laughs> because knowing how creative you are, that might have been a rather creative uh, situation for that person. I had many, <laughs> many creative, psychologically uh, bad ideas. In the end, I just hired a lawyer. <laughs> well, that's that better got, than hiring an assassin, <laughs> Boris. That got the money back. <laughs> yeah, oh, God. but yeah. you know, every, every freelancer out there knows this situation. And we all know how mad it can make yeah. you because people can act very sort of, yeah, disrespectfully at times towards freelancers and it can make you mad. Did you ever suffer from an intrusive thoughts? Like that feeling of this thought is coming into my mind and it feels like not part of me. I don't know why the hell I'm feeling this. Like, did you ever feel like a sense of alienness? Because people, some people talk about this sort of nowadays, like I'm having this coming into my mind and it doesn't feel as of me. It feels as of elsewhere. And it's particularly when people don't feel like a sense of an integrated self. Out of the fragmentation comes... Never, but I think mm -hmm. as humans, we can do all things positive and negative, good and bad. Mm -hmm. And I have it in me, you have it in me. Mm -hmm. And if you later talk about the disinformation aspect of AI, mm -hmm. I know so many good ways <laughs> to inform and to destabilize democracies. Mm -hmm. It just come up, it's a creative exercise, but I'm not <laughs> going to use it. <laughs> Boris, you make such a beautiful dictator. I mean, I would just love to see what the no, hell you... <laughs> I'm not interested in it. Um, did you ever hear about the, pa the paper maximizer um, theory um not yet Tell so, me. well so i was just when i was sort of like looking in into ai yeah. and uh it's like this 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 paperclip maximizer um scenario and it's like right if you've got ai and you plug into ai your job and your goal is that you have to make as many paperclips as is possible and that is the absolute end that you have mm -hmm. and then the ai becomes so obsessed with carrying out this order that it essentially sees anything that comes in front of it as an impediment and therefore cannon fodder. But not only that, as, oh, Boris L. Dagson's here. He's got some rather nice atoms. I might use those to create some mm -hmm. paper clips. And so everything in the universe is just mm -hmm. only served 
to serve the programming of the AI, which is that you are going to create as many. Okay. Um, and so then I was actually like putting it into Dali because I was quite interested to see what a picture of a universe that was just full of paper clips and it was pretty wild. And um, but it's uh, it, it, it's so interesting how all of these wild scenarios start coming out philosophically from the AI debate. And it's, you know, when you think you were talking about sort of, I think in one of your interviews about AI having the potential to, it's, I think you described it as a dictator or an autocrat's wet dream. Yes. <laughs> Which I find yeah, very yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah. And it's like when you combine <laughs> that, the diabolical things that human yeah. beings can do with the potential of AI. I mean, it is mind blowing. And the thing is, is that I think to follow those ideas to the limits of your mind is also a healthy scenario. Because if not, how can you understand the power yeah. that we are wielding and that might wield itself? And so if you were to think of the, let's say, the worst of where AI could go, like when you th when you play through those scenarios in your mind, just give us a color, give us a sense um, as a as a game, as a philosophical game. What's the worst? Like how would you or could you but see it? Which AI are we talking about? I don't know, because Boris. That, I mean, <laughs> anything that we digitalized in the nineties can be now generated mm -hmm. and used for whatever purpose. Well, I often say it's um, we always invented tools as humans, and they are like knives. You can use it for cooking or for killing. Mm -hmm. But now we might have a knife that has legs and can jump off the table and do whatever it wants, or not. Mm -hmm. We are still talking about mathematics, about mm -hmm. probability. If you talk to programmers, I had a chat with uh, the head of the developer team of Stable Diffusion. He says, it's not going to happen. What we are having here, what we create, is a machine that perfectly does what you tell the machine to do. It has no consciousness. It has no will of its own. Others say we have the basis for it to become independent, to use the internet, to connect with other AIs, mm -hmm. to come up with their own ideas of what they would mm -hmm. like to do. And then we have the matrix. It's a mathematical probability. I have no idea if that is more probable than other things. Mm -hmm. And I have not the power to change it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have not the power to change that I'm going to die, that you are going to die that the sun is going down at 9.30. Well, look, I we're going to go into this deeper mm -hmm. as it goes on. And that was a little flurry of, of interest out yeah. of the imagining of, you know, dictators and autocracy and where the mind can go when when you let it no I, let's let's go back to talking about psychology but that's I what i wanted that's what i wanted to do this because because then, then then we come up at jung's shadow that, that, yeah okay okay well you yeah. follow on um well jung is old school uh, philosophy i still like him because his idea was that we have a shadow these are the parts in ourselves that we dislike mm -hmm. yeah all the tendencies to be mean, to be a dictator, to do disinformation. And what we need to do in our lifetime is to come to terms, yeah? Not to say, no, it's not me, it's mm -hmm. not part of me. Because if you do so, yeah. you see it in others. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, if you see your own shadow in others, you really get upset. Um, it is important to integrate that part into yourself mm -hmm. and to say, okay, this is all me and... Uh, only then you can 
also use parts of it in a positive way and it's not going to have a life in itself. Did you, when you started confronting the fear that you had inherited and the, let's say, the shadows that you found inside yourself, because this is the fascinating thing about the shadow is that, okay, we have an archetypal shadow that, this, that relates to a deeper consciousness or will, however you want to look at it, this, this place perhaps that's beyond good and evil, that is sometimes the source of whatever the hell, wherever the hell mm-hmm. it is we, we come from. And yet also this sort of, this potential, this well that we have within us, it can, it's also conditioned by life and it's conditioned by, you know, your parents went mm-hmm. through the second world war. And it's, it's, you obviously had this sense of, anger that came up with you, which was part of the moving on of society as a microcosm through you. And then, of course, your parents, it's like they are born into an impossible moment of history that's way beyond them. And I find this 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 thing that you said about, well, it wasn't my resp- responsibility to carry it on. It was my responsibility to challenge it. And is that something that at that time in your life, in your 30s, do you feel that your revelation of understanding the nature of that fear and the confrontation that you had with it, do you feel that that's something that has helped you to sort of move things forward yeah. generationally in you? Definitely. I think it never stops. There are mm-hmm. still things you need to solve. My new art project talks about this. It's called Trauma Porn. It's the, um, the effects of uh, traumatizing events in my family history, World War II, and what it means to the next generations. And if you talk about post-war, Germany, Europe, wherever, everybody was traumatized and there were not enough help for traumatized people, so Mm -hmm. they just didn't talk about it. And sometimes it just popped up. I remember my father in the 80s when there were demonstrations on the street of late hippies and early movement of the Greens. His solution to the problem was to use a flammenwerfer. You know, the World War II, you had those weapons that were throwing flames. And he said, once you have smelled uh, burnt uh, human flesh, it's going to cure you. And you're sitting there as a young boy and you don't know what happens. Because that generation, it's something they all knew. Nobody talked about. Sometimes it pops up. And I was too young to react to it. I mean, you you are talking about the extremities they understood the extremities of what we can do to each other and it's so interesting in our generation because having not a lot at least many of us having we haven't experienced the brutality yeah. of, of war of that nature and do not get me wrong for a moment there are terrible things going on there are wars that's going on in in, in ukraine and 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 in other yeah. places there's always suffering and the thing but the, on that world level so many people had that that closeness to how you very vividly described it that sort of burnt flesh but done from one person to an, another one and how do you feel like at this point that because it feels like we are we are dislocated somehow to that that profound darkness that exists within us that doesn't have to be darkness but it's like you said well the good in you jim is 
is there, but also the potential yeah. to enact that darkness. And it's like that arrogance that I feel like sometimes we have nowadays. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't do that. Well, how the hell do you know you wouldn't do that? Like William James, when he was in... He was um, in a in a, a psychiatric ward, uh, more like probably, a, you know, what they would call a loony bin back then, terribly. And he saw this frothing man and he was in a cage, you know, or behind bars at least. And he was there watching this man froth and rage. And he felt this profound panic in him. And he didn't understand. He was essentially, I think he was having an anxiety attack. Mm-hmm. And he said he had the revelation that shape am I potentially, that shape am I potentially. And what I understand from that, it's that knowledge that I feel like I know in my life, that you can go over the edge into the dark in ways. And for me, like I've worked on my mental health my whole life, not just because I feel like that's like how I want to be in the world, but it's out of that knowledge that that darkness exists in each and every one of us. And, if you haven't gone to that place, which I would rather most people don't go to, by the way, but it's like, if, if you don't know that place, or you, either in yourself on a psychological level, or in such as your parents' generation, where it's been there and they've, they've smelt the, the, the decay and the disaster, if you don't know that, it's just an abstract idea. Yeah. And do you feel like, where do you feel we are in society with that do you feel like there's a disconnect to that greater darkness or potential or well just a comment on that that that. i think what is important is to get out of your own country to go somewhere else Mm -hmm. and to see that we in europe we are living in paradise and that Mm -hmm. there are countries with no existing health system where people are starving and I think that was very important for me in the 90s to go to India. Yeah? Mm. And in the 90s, India was much, much rougher than it was to, it is mm. today. You had people with leprosis and no legs on a kind of like wooden board with uh, roads below just going like this mm. and uh, trying to get some begging in the traffic. Um, uh, that is something where you are thankful first yeah that somehow you have been born here um, not with these problems yeah and mm-hmm. what I found fascinating on a psychological level um, like me living in Germany the images I did were always like working on the shadow on those aspects and then when I went to India it was like those things that I'm working on psychologically are bare on the street <laughs> And what the Indians that I studied with at art school were interested in painting was the opposite, was beautiful things. <laughs> mm-hmm. They didn't, they had no interest in psychological artwork and paintings. Mm-hmm. They wanted to have a contrast to the suffering of daily life and to have beauty, where for me as an artist, beauty was always coming second. <laughs> so do you feel now this... Sorry, change the battery. Change the battery, no problem at all. Yeah, um, toilet break. Yeah, jump in, jump in. So as you sought to integrate these aspects of your path, of your past and the generations before you, what did you find that you started achieving or discovering a greater sense of unity in yourself? Like how did that manifest in you on a psychological level? Because you're wrestling with 
part of, I don't like the word condition, but understanding that you were suffering from ADHD um, or something. I, I had no feeling of suffering, none. I would have never put me in that basket. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt that my parents were different. When you grow up, you think everybody is like my parents. And then we, later you realize, no, they are not. And then um, I stumbled over an article telling about ADHD with grown-ups and I saw my parents. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of um, changed my attitude towards my mom. My father had passed 2000, that was too early. Um, but I kind of like not felt, I did feel sorry, yeah, because um, um, it's too late for her now to change anything. We had been talking about this and sometimes she said, I don't have it, I'm normal. And the next moment she says, yeah, what you are telling about it, it fits to me as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but for me, when I got aware of it, it was in my late 40s and I thought, fuck, I have wasted so many years <laughs> without even knowing mm -hmm. why my parents are different mm -hmm. and not realizing that it is affecting me and not realizing that it has affected all my relationships. If I go back to my relationships, most of them had ADHD as well, because mm -hmm. as a non-ADHD person, you just cannot live with an ADHD person for a longer time. And all of my artist friends, and I started talking openly to my artist friends, mm -hmm. and many of them said, thank you. I started to think about it. Mm -hmm. I realized I'm part of it as well. And that knowledge also improved their lives. Do you think the thing that made you struggle in relationships was in terms of the manifestation of ADHD or what, what, what I, don't, I don't really like the limiting terminology of the experience you were having, let's put it like this, but was, was there an obsession with your work? Like what was it the, that challenged the relationships um, specifically from your condition of what was going on inside you? Um, one thing is, was fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fear of communicating openly. That took some time, yeah, to talk about problems, to talk about sexuality, and fear of not knowing how to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. That fear was inherited from my parents. Mm -hmm. There was always a problem with money, and there was never enough money to pay stuff. Um, that was um, having an effect on my relationships and then often different life goals. Yeah? Um, mm -hmm. The woman I went to, to India and to uh, Prague, to, she was studying medicine. She had a clear career and she wanted to have a family. And I had no idea what to do. I just finished my studies with philosophy and art. What do you do yeah, to, uh, to maintain a living? I didn't want to go and become a teacher. And I needed to have a job to be an artist. And how can I then start a family? And it was overwhelming for me. So we split up and she uh, started a family with another doctor. How did that affect you? I think it was good for us to separate. And I'm still loosely in contact. Mm -hmm. And uh, she had two sons. And when the, son, the youngest was a teenager, mm -hmm. he was sent to me <laughs> because he needed to do an artistic project in, uh, in school and he wanted to do photography. So they asked me, can he do something with you and can you be the expert to talk to him? And I did. And that's lovely. Yeah. I don't think it's an unfamiliar story. And I certainly relate the, the reason 
that I didn't want to have kids young was because it was always very tough in the arts in terms yeah. of like what whatever was going to how were you going to yeah. make a living and be an independent entity in the world beyond yeah. the you know yeah. the next day and i think a lot of people struggle with that nowadays um and i think a lot of people maybe who might have wanted to have kids like don't have kids as a result of that and it's i think maybe that's yeah. something that isn't talked about enough in the arts um because it is of course people do have breakthroughs and make yeah. wonderful careers but a yeah. lot of people are all, who are great artists yeah. are always living at the threshold of survival yeah, yeah. Two, two things i would like to tell about kids like mm -hmm. my older brother also had no urge to create a family i think what we realized as children growing up in a household where there was no money yeah i don't know that we had the, had the idea that having kids is making your life better <laughs> <laughs> it was making it more complicated. <laughs> and then I thought if it's even so complicated, like for parents that are no artists, yeah, being an artist is going to be more complicated. But I have an, 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 a very good artist friend and she has three kids mm -hmm. and she studied art. And when she got the second kid, her professor basically said, it's over now. Like, <laughs> oh, can you have an art career now? Because two kids and with the third kid, do something else. Responsibility, buddy. She continued and she still continues and she has great kids and the oldest is also an artist. Yeah, mm -hmm. And it somehow worked and her work, lifetime work was about feminism to prove her professor that she was wrong mm -hmm. with her assumption that you either have to decide to be an artist or to have a family. Yeah. Wow. It is Wonderful. for sure tougher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so if someone is... Before we talk about the the, the Sony World Picture yeah. Awards, in terms of an artist out there who is at a point in their life or their career, and just in that moment of struggle that you you've mentioned different times of different struggles that you've been through in your thirties when you had the realization of the fear that something you had to work out, and then also later in your forties when you had you said and it was very moving you were, you were you were like when you realized that your parents had suffered from not suffered said when your parents had um with adhd yeah. had lived with through the experience and that you had as well and you had this feeling of oh i wish i'd known earlier um which really touched me um because it's look we all have our past and yeah. and the past is such a strange experience because on the one hand we can't change the lineage the, 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 yeah. the lineage that we've been through and yet on the other hand we can change everything yeah. and so it's a paradox because it's a sort of like unity of disunity if you like and um it's work and it's work <laughs> to that artist yeah. who is in that moment where they really they're just struggling about how to go forward they know that it's something that they want to do like you did yeah. they, they, they've got to that point where it's it's not really a question but nonetheless it's like the how am i going to do it yeah. like what 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 would you say to that person that younger version of you let's say um it is very important to identify what gives you energy this you need to maintain <laughs> without energy you can't keep on and uh, if in the process there are aspects that drain energy 
try to change it, mm -hmm. <laughs> get rid of them or have it less draining uh, and uh, be aware of your health and do something that keeps you in balance. I never had time to go to um, do proper sports to care for my health. I'm 6.2 tall. Everything is not big enough. And when I was 30, uh, having I started to have back problems in my 20s. And then a 30 uh, guy said, you need to do something or you will have disc prolapse. And I said, yeah, yeah, I do it later. Mm -hmm. I had two very <laughs> hard disc prolapses. Did you? With the second one, I couldn't sit or stand or walk for months. I need to do a rehab. Oh. And what I would ask, I said, just, just be aware of that your health is going to change, that you have a certain amount of energy and um, that needs to be refilled. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to, to find that source that can refill your batteries. In terms of a, how one puts that into action in the day, do you have a day routine or a daily ritual or a morning routine. The reason I ask is because mm -hmm. a lot of artists struggle with the fact that, or at least, especially when you're younger, and I've, I've, I've been obsessive, mm -hmm. I think, about how to be in the day, the process of being in the day. Mm -hmm. How do I keep, because as an artist, you spend a lot of time alone. That's just how it is. And I mean, yesterday, wonderful. I had a day, I had a 14 hour day on set filming and that was lovely. But there are a lot of days where I'm literally just with myself and mm -hmm. that's the experience of being being an artist. And so I've ritualized all types of different things mm -hmm. as ways of not only sort of being productive, but much more importantly, like you said, about managing my energy, keeping healthy, mm -hmm. finding this balance that you talk mm -hmm. about. So what do you have certain rituals or routines? Um, not in the past years because um, I'm living with my partner now and that is still in the flux and uh, she got sick last year it changed everything so there is no normal daily life for months now mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm going day by day but i really think what you are doing is how it should be and when i was uh, living alone i had things like this i'm a late night person i uh, photographed for years only at night. And then I so got up late. I had breakfast when there was a, a, a place at Rosenthaler Platz where I could still go to. I just went there, I had a little breakfast. And then I started and I did jobs and administration and so on and washing and all the stuff you need to do. And then in the evening, in, in summer and in autumn, I went out shooting for two or three hours. Mm -hmm. And then I had a late night beer on my way back. Yes. And started again next day. How has it been? Is it, I, I, if it's okay just to ask, how has it been like recently? Because that's, I know you've been through so much and I don't, I don't want to pry into your private life. Yeah, um, no, you can but, talk about it. Uh, but I just mean that like, I've also been through the, through cancer in my family. So yeah. I, I have a sense of, of, of how hard and painful it is with a parent, not with, with, with a partner. Yeah. And how, how do you how do you manage such a difficult situation such a painful situation when there's i'm asking from two perspectives one on a life perspective that that's mm. just a very hard experience mm. 
Um, and maybe I, perhaps even more so as an artist because maybe when you have the ritual of having to go to the nine to five that's quite mm-hmm. a useful time to have to do basic yeah. things to keep you going even if one's resistant and a bit exhausted but the ritual yeah. maybe helps you but the other thing you've your life has been through an explosion recently I mean not many people have had the experience of life that you've had recently so how yeah. do you how have you managed but all of these I, things I think there are many experiences that keep me grounded and it's the the normal dramas of life i had a friend that tried to kill himself when he was 27 he was jumping out uh, his apartment in uh, moikal was found hours later and then he stayed in a kind of wake coma for months uh, and i visited him once or twice a week mm-hmm. then i had a couple of years that were good and uh, the, then Five, six years ago, I split up with a long-term relationship, very painfully. Then I was financially bankrupt. Then a friend of mine turned crazy. And uh, later we found out he had a brain tumor. And then another friend turned crazy and killed himself in the third attempt of suicide. Then you had corona. My mom had terrible corona in the first wave. After the first wave, the friend with brain cancer said, listen, I have possibly a year, one and a half, And then I'm going to die because just I'm going to be paralyzed or I can't breathe anymore. And the only freedom I have is to decide when do I want to die. And he asked me to organize that in Switzerland. And I said, I can't do it alone. Mm -hmm. So we had a team of three, um, an old school friend of him organizing the payment, uh, another artist friend and me just accompanying him to Switzerland, being there when he died, cleaning up his apartment. And then my new partner finally moved to Berlin. Um, Six weeks later, she got a cancer diagnosis. Sorry. And that was just a series where you think it's going to be better and then it hits you again. And the the cancer therapy is nearly finished. Everything is as good as possible. But you have to keep in mind her diagnosis is one of the reasons why I got into AI. Mm-hmm. That was one of the only ways of being creative that were possible last autumn. Um, but after those things, you realize it can be over tomorrow. It can be just a mistake, bad accident. And then you think, is this it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My friend who was three years uh, older than I, he's dead now. Yeah, is this mm-hmm. it? My friend who tried to kill himself when he was 27, he's mm-hmm. 20 years dead now. Mm-hmm. And um, But to go through the pain, the only thing you can do is to acknowledge it. You can say, yes, it hurts. And I think mm-hmm. the best consolidation you could get by a friend is just saying, yes, it hurts. Yeah, there's nothing, I can't talk you out of it. Mm-hmm. I can just uh, be there for you when you need one. And those are moments you will never forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know there is a, a friend of mine, an actress, when uh, the, 20 years ago my father was dying and the other friend was in, in, in coma and I was going from one hospital to the next. She said, who is taking care of you? And I thought, <laughs> question no one asked. Yeah, I said, no one. And then she said, well, you come to me. She was playing theater in, in Turing in that time. And you come for the weekend and you get a hot bathtub, which I hadn't in my apartment. And we're going to watch the Oscars and I'm going to cook for you. And that's something you never forget. I think those things are important. And then getting through it, 
the pain will become less, the pain will become bearable, and then suddenly things are happening you cannot predict, like the whole AI thing yeah, came out of the blue, and that a year later I'm going to be live on CNN, who would have thought? Yeah. So, but if you have experienced those those elements, this is the grounding you need. Yeah, I know all of that hype or interest in me can be over next year, next month, and so be it. Yeah, it's not like I have made it now. This is going to stay. I have no idea what's going to happen. Maybe the interest in me and my work will become more. Or maybe I'm back to where I started. And this is what you know as an artist. You have a project, you have an exhibition, you think, this is it. <laughs> this is going to be my breakthrough. This mm. exhibition, and I do everything <laughs> for it. And then I'm going to be discovered, and life will be different. <laughs> and you do it, and it's not happening. Mm. And then you start again, and then you're back to Sisyphus. And um, th this is it. You can only do as much as you can. Give it all, and if it's going to happen to lead you somewhere or not, is not really in your hands, and maybe not even relevant at the end. I mean, when no. I when I listen to you, Boris, yeah. as it feels so moved by everything that you told me about, it's such deep, shared human experience. Some people know more of it at a certain time in their life. Some people know less of it. When I was just listening to you now, and I just it was almost like I. I deepened in my seat because it was I'm looking forward to talking with you about the other stuff but it also suddenly felt so irrelevant because yeah. this question of, of mortality not as something to be feared necessarily because it's also like you said it's okay whatever feeling is there it is okay to feel yeah. but I just felt this I was I just had this overwhelming sense of that's the meaning just just that nothing mm -hmm. else no, not 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 an end, not a search for an answer. I mean, it's so yeah. easy if you're on a podcast, people are looking for answers. We're all looking for answers. And it's like, I don't know, when you just told me that tapestry, it's like, I could breathe. I was like, okay, it, it's okay. It's just its own bubbling anarchy. And all I could hope in such situation that I was in with you is to yeah. speak so eloquently and emotionally and really, you, you're not, you, you you, you've got glittering eyes, but you're not getting, you don't feel like you're suffocated by that that you're yeah. being through. And it just, just, I mean, it just, it feels like, I don't know, I feel like just sitting opposite you in a, in a, in a state of learning somehow. Mm -hmm. I'm very thankful for that. And I, it, it's so strange because I was like, how the hell does this man evoke such a sense of peace with such disruption going on in his life, such an, in, an in inquisition, positive, negative, all of the in-between. Mm -hmm. You don't have to color it as anything, but also with such a profound experience of m mortality and the, 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 the tragedy of, of life and the beauty, because friendship is also, yeah. even if you lose a friend, you've also got the friend that you've lost, which is, yeah utterly amazing and I was just like I I just I don't have a question I'm just more to observe that I feel humbled by that and the strange thing is it's all happening parallel <laughs> the good things and the bad things yeah the tragedies and the beauties 
and we all wish for a life where it's only beauty <laughs> and everything works. But the reality is it's, it's pockets and moments and um, yeah, this is it. Uh, I have no idea. I, I think when I was going through those five years of drama, um, I was thankful for my partner to be there. Yeah? And I hope that at some point life is going to be easy again and you think of a certain time and you were young and had fun and party like no one else and then you realize well possibly this is going to continue so my mom is showing first signs of dementia mm -hmm. next this is the next drama waiting for me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i can't change it so what can i do if i can't change it i can just um go through there mm -hmm. and try to solve it as best as I can and then see where it's going to lead me to. And it's like you said, I think about being, well, I, what you said earlier, to be within the hut, to be, to be within it. Like, yeah. Because this whole aspiration so often is to kind of get through or over yeah. or beyond the hurt or, or the pain. And the paradox is, and this is what I felt so moved by within about what you were talking about, and I relate to it is what about being within it and 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 feeling it and and then by doing so, yeah. going recognizing that that is the transformation. Yeah. And but also within that transformation, like God knows where it goes because yeah. you, I mean, look at what's been going on in your life and the debate because it's not just about you and this is what we'll get to, but the way that all of this stuff has led to this moment that has but that becomes meaningful in a way that is so much beyond you. And you see that I think with how the community has taken yeah. on all of the things you've opened up. And maybe the strange thing is it's a natural point to go to the berserk side of your life of everything that's happened recently. So may, why, why don't we just, for people that don't know the story with the yeah. Sony World Picture Awards, give them a little overview. Okay, um, I started to experiment with AI image generators a year ago. And it's just a year. And it really helped me and I got, got me energy through all of those appointments with my partner at doctor's offices and hospitals. And because I was one of the first to do in the German photo bubble, I got a lot of like feedback and interviews and press and asking mm -hmm. to do presentations. And I'm a member of photo associations. Uh, so I was talking about the topic from all different sides. And then in autumn, usually you have open calls for photo competitions. I thought, well, it was a lot of press about AI image generators in August, September. Um, do photo competitions think about the possibility that people hand in AI-generated images? I just wanted to see if they have done their homework mm -hmm. and looked at the nitty-gritties of the guidelines, and they haven't. So I just thought, well, let's send an AI-generated image and wait for anything to happen. I did not expect that one and the same image, the electrician was shortlisted three times. <laughs> and the third time with the Sony World Photography Awards, the open category creative, um, I was selected as a winner. So I had no plan B <laughs> how to continue from there. Mm -hmm. But to tell them the facts, 
and say you can disqualify me mm -hmm. or if you would like to continue. It is important to talk about the relationship between AI-generated images and photography. I've been doing that in Germany for months. What about a Zoom talk, something open? Uh -huh. It was never responded to. Twice it was never responded to. They also didn't talk in the team. So they said, you can keep it. And if you would like to come to London to the award ceremony, you can come, but pay on your own expenses. <laughs> so I thought, press release is in four weeks. Let's wait for the press release. And I thought it's going to be transparent in the press release, but it wasn't. And immediately that day, I had inquiries from a platform in Poland saying, is it AI or not? And I said, yes, they know. And they said, can you write a statement? I said, yes. So I wrote a statement in half an hour. Then the PR officer from the organizers, which is not Sony, but an event agency in the UK, uh, sent me an email. Listen, we have so many questions about your image. Can you send us more information we can pass on to the press? So I had my press, my statement, sending it. Hours later, they responded with a smiley thank you. So I could have believed they used my statement to send it out to the press, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they wanted to keep it quiet. Uh -huh. and, and my friends with the German photo press sent me the reply. If you ask, is it AI or not? They were just responding. Dear Jim, thank you for your email. To quote our CEO, we support the medium and its development, creative expressions, blah. AI wasn't even mentioned. Mm -hmm. I asked them, why didn't you use my statement? No answer. Only the third time I pressured them, they said, it can't continue like this. You are getting emails by people that are upset. I'm getting emails by people that are upset. You need to talk about it. Mm -hmm. They promised to do a Q&A mm -hmm. before the award ceremony. They didn't keep the promise. So what I did, I said, it needs to be disruptive because otherwise they are going to be silent about it. Mm -hmm. And that is wrong. I didn't want to have a $5,000 award for something I never really applied for. It was a test. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's kind of a hacker's attitude, right? Yes. I wanted to find the, 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 the weak spots to say, you need to change something about mm -hmm. it. So I bought that flight ticket, EasyJet, hand luggage only. I rented a tuxedo <laughs> in Schöneberg. If you're gay weddings, if you need a tuxedo, go there. They're the best. And they even made my pants larger because I couldn't fit in. <laughs> And then I was flying to London for 24 hours at a very overpriced hotel at Hyde Park because this is where the award ceremony was. I went to this award ceremony and uh, expected that I'm going to have stage time, but I didn't. And uh, the event was in two parts, first part, dinner, second part, and the creative category was before dinner time. And they didn't invite me on stage. So I was kind of saved by dinner break. And I thought, what am I going to do now? So you're at this moment and you've gone there. You've got your yeah. rented tuxedo yeah. on. You haven't had your flights uh, paid for. You're having to pay for your own hotel. Yes. And you've got to the point where not only is there no dialogue about the yeah. award, but also you are not being given the opportunity to have the debate yeah. of why you were there in the first place. Right. And I realized it's a money-driven event. So what's going on in your brain in that break? Because that's a big moment in your life, right? Yes, yes. That, that was kind of like uh, hardcore uh, crash course in psychotherapy. <laughs> and, um, 
No, because I was I, get it. I was writing like like my refusal speech. Uh, I was learning it by heart in the plane, and I mm -hmm. thought I can talk about it. And then I couldn't. So, um, what can I do? I asked my British friend. He said, "Forget about it." A guy from the German press said, "Go and get a microphone." But that time, already dinner was happening. It was noisy and loud. Nobody would have listened. I asked my partner, she said, go and get the microphone. And then I had the, the young me that was really shy, yeah, in the, that had all the fear of my parents and my mom. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I can't do this. I've, I'm not invited. Mm -hmm. I'm not part of the program. Why can I go to stage and get the microphone? And it was the older me that said, you've experienced so much bullshit that <laughs> you want to support this bullshit. And so I'm having this debate and I was kind of figuring out, do they have security? How easy mm -hmm. is it to get on stage? Mm -hmm. And then what really was the tipping point talking about ADHD and justice was that um, I was allowed to bring a friend for dinner. They said yes, but after dinner they came and they wanted to have 70 pounds for a bottle of wine <laughs> because they said this is not part of the agreement. I said nobody told us about the agreement. And so I said, fuck it. If you are that money driven, mm -hmm. I don't have to be polite. So I was waiting for the start of the second half and the host was a British BBC lady. When she was going to the microphone, I came from the other side, dressed in my tuxedo and I was very friendly, <laughs> was looking good. I said, excuse me, I was selected for blah, blah, blah. I would like to say something, may I? And she was very friendly, but taken by surprise. I don't know, it's not part of the program. Maybe you need to ask the organizers. <laughs> And there was a lady from the organizers approaching. And then I thought, well, fuck it. Here's the microphone. <laughs> I have learned my text by heart. It's going to be a minute. I'm going to say it now. And then they were standing next to me and saying, this is, you can't do this. It's not part of the program. Can you please leave the stage? And I was just saying my text. And she just kept on saying it. I kept on saying my text. And then I said, thank you to the audience. And sorry for the interruption. And have a good <laughs> evening. I was going back to the I table. love the fact you apologize as well. It's just it's like this tuxedo gentleman yeah. disrupting and apologizing. But it's also so interesting, all of this stuff going on in your brain between the shy young man dealing with those ancient fears and then that yeah. that leader in you and also the part of you that really wanted because I know that you're very motivated to do justice it's, it's, with it's, the community. It's, it's not that I wanted to lead and it's not about power. I thought, no, 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 but I didn't mean it like that. No, but but, but what I mean is that yeah. our, our life takes us to yeah. a point where it's not about wanting to do it. You'd yeah. been put in that situation. If you hadn't done it, there would yeah. be no debate. I, I didn't want to take any bullshit and I realized I'm in a position where I can make a difference mm -hmm. also for friends of mine, for the photo community. And I saw it is important to talk about it now. The photo scene was frozen in shock. The technical development was speeding up, accelerating, and that debate needed to start. So I thought it's now or never. And that just got me going. And once you are mm -hmm. over the tipping point and <sighs> you've got the microphone, you just do it. And that was one of the hardest moments in my life where you could say, what do I do? Do I go right or left? And then I thought, hmm. if I don't go to the microphone, everything will stay how it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't matter if I do a statement on social media or if I go to the CEO on the table, they will not be interested. So it needs to be something to show I'm not going to support that bullshit. It's the red pill or the blue pill moment in the Matrix, right? It is. And the 70 pounds bill. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. Oh, my word. And it's just like, 
but it's so fascinating when you just think of a life and you think of this whole journey that, you know, yeah. going from the door, going to India, going to Prague, going to Australia, seeing the fear, you know, feeling the fear that you didn't know where it came from, then recognizing it. And then later on and understanding about ADHD, trying to figure it all out, surviving as an artist, going broke. And then all the things that have happened in the latter day with all of the painful experiences and the people that you've lost and your partner. And it's just you just think of that microcosmic moment and what i what i find so 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 beautiful and very boris is that it's almost like that bottle of wine it's like your whole damn life was in that bill part of yeah but what i mean is that like sometimes at the critical moment it's like you need something that winds you up a bit (laughs) yes 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 definitely definitely and um but nobody came to me that evening it was silence, right, afterwards? No, well, I just kept on with the, uh, like, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And the program and nobody from the press that was there talked to me, nobody from the organizers. I stayed till 20 minutes later and uh, went to the overpriced hotel, sent them an email with text of my refusal, asking them not to send me the gear and to donate it. To Ukraine, right? You There's a photo festival in Odessa. Yeah. I know the people. I yeah. said, give it to them. Yeah. And then I posted the same text in uh, Facebook and Instagram and went to mm-hmm. bed. Mm-hmm. I was not paying a PR strategist or <laughs> yeah. sending it out to journalists. And then it started to become viral while I was sleeping. Unbelievable. And it, it went to The Guardian, to The Times, live on CNN, Al Jazeera, I heard, NPR. And I read somewhere that they think it, it had something like 800 million impressions. Yeah. Which is just Absolutely extraordinary. So let's talk about the artwork itself, because mm-hmm. one of the fascinating things is for better or worse, for good or bad, the image that you created won. And it doesn't matter that you were rejecting it in your speech. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it still won, which is such a fascinating um, evocation of that that you created. And I'm hoping that you might have a surprise for us and maybe be able to show it to us. <gasps> I do. Yes. Where do I have it? Here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I hope the sound is still running. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all good. So for people who are, hello, everyone, listening, Boris has his <clears throat> work from pseudo Pseudomnesia. I also have old photographs, but we, the, can, we can start with Yeah, the ex- and so he's yeah. going to show, I believe, the experiment, which is the award-winning piece. And I thought for a moment it'd just be a lovely thing. So Boris is now putting on his white gloves onto his right hand. He is dressed in a, not a tuxedo, he has a black tie on and braces. And we're experiencing high drama here, ladies and gentlemen. And he's opening the case, and out of the case is the disruptive artwork itself. This is so exciting. So which camera um, do you want me to, to show? Um, to why you? don't you, uh, Ola, what do you think? Maybe over here? And over so, here. Okay. You know what, Boris, let's do it. No, show, show it over here. Show it to this one behind me. And I'll keep talking. I, I think let's remember people are listening without video. And so he's getting the piece. Out. So what's it printed on, Boris? What are we looking at? That is a fine art paper where it's printed on. It's a very small and tiny size. Here we are. And that is it. Yeah. 
That is the original in that size. And uh, yeah. I think one of the things that's so striking about seeing it in a reel, this is so wonderful, is the, what is, is it, you see the texture of the work, you feel invited and drawn into it. And you might think, you might have the presupposition in your mind that you're watching a, a work that's been driven from AI, mm -hmm. that you might have some type of sort of resistance or sense of it. But what I find fascinating is how it, how it draws you in. And the paradox for me is that I can see why the hell it won as a photograph, whether you want to call it a photograph no. or, uh, or <laughs> we, let's talk about that in a moment. Yeah. Well, what I mean is that like, what I find so fascinating is that the, the, the prompting the, I think you can take it down now yeah. for us. I think, but what I find so fascinating is that it's not a bunch of random prop prompts. I go and use Dali sometimes and it's like, I have a bit of fun with it, but I can see in this, and I will call it a work of art because that's how I see yeah, it, yeah. is I see the lifetime of experience and research into human experience and the human condition, and you see it in, in the work of art. I totally agree. Yeah, um, I loved it when I, when I produced it very early last September, 22. Um, it was one of the first works you could do with Dali 2 art painting. So it's uh, 20 steps. You start with a text description, uh, and that was the two ladies, and then it grows, and you can add pixels, and with, with Every part you erase or you add, you need again to describe in a text prompt what you would like to appear. And that has 20 loops. So it's not one text prompt, it's 20. But is that your 20 prompts? Is that your process? Yes. That, you, 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 you that is what I used last year. And so did you, when you say 20 prompts, was that with that one work of art or was that a system that you developed towards creating the works that you're making? Last year, September, I was just trying out the tool. Yeah, I, started, I understand. Yeah. No, I started in July. And now I have a system. Uh, can also, I'm teaching workshops on AI images since January. And I got deep into that over the years, because uh, over the years, over the months. Mm -hmm. um, if you prompt and use all the different platforms and dry out things, you realize there is a certain structure to it. There mm -hmm. is a certain system that you can put in words that you can uh, explain to others. And so in terms of why do you think that work of art, no, forget Boris, okay. but, yeah. but Al Dagson, I'm talking about why do you think that it actually won? Forgetting the debate, I mean, as a work of art, what, what, what do you see it is, as its qualities? It is a strong work of art that has all the qualities I want my work to have. For me, an artwork is um, not what does the artist want to tell us. <laughs> That's very patronizing. For me, an artwork is an impulse for an inner journey. It is you that should ask yourself, um, am I attracted by it? Mm -hmm. Am I appalled? What kind of ideas, memories, thoughts, emotions are triggered? Why? So a good artwork is, has a certain openness, so you can enter with your personality and with your personal interpretation. If I'm going to tell you, this is what I wanted. <laughs> you can't enter 
Yeah, it's just destroying the quality an artwork should have that each person is interpreting it differently. When I give you my interpretation, it's a limitation. You try to see what I have uh, told you. And you're not trying to find yourself in it and to become aware of yourself. And once the story broke out, mm-hmm. one of the things that I find very like profound is the extent to which, okay, there was the interest in it. What do you think the, it feels like the interest in it was almost beyond what happened. Mm-hmm. Like it was almost like there was some type of universal, because it, it was one of those stories it was literally so ubiquitous. It was almost like a very, very famous person had suddenly passed away. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's one of those stories that you remember in your life. Um, and but what do you think it tapped into? Uh, many things at the same time. Mm-hmm. We are talking about a new technology. And um, it became clear that this can be used to produce art. Mm-hmm. So talking about art, what is art? Does art need to be to have a human authorship? Can it be produced by a machine? Is it still art? But people uh, don't see that working like I do, it's a tool. <laughs> it's, it's something you need to learn to master. Mm-hmm. And uh, it makes a difference who is using the tool. It's not an autonomous machine. Mm-hmm. But this is a fear why we can talk about. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that for society, um, we still have kind of trusted on photographic or, or images looking like photography that they represent an event, the world, something that has happened. We know it is possible to fake it. It has been possible to fake it for 100 years. I remember that famous image of Lenin and Trotsky who was taken out of the picture. But we still have this trust that a a photograph could show me something that has happened. And now we have a radical shift. In the future, our default mode at looking onto images that look like photography, in my point of view, should be mistrust. Should be, it's possibly generated. Mm-hmm. Unless it's proven otherwise mm-hmm. and had a certain quality check. How can we make this quality check? What is the potential of disinformation for democracies, especially combined with social media? What are the worst case scenarios? So this is also something. And then the third question for the photo community is how can we continue from now on? How can we do photo museums, photo festivals, photo galleries? Are we only showing photography? What is photography? For some, AI is the logical path from photography, from analog to digital. Mm -hmm. They talk about the outcome. I talk about the process. Is it a good thing to put AI-generated images that look like photography and photography in the same basket or not? I wonder, Boris, whether part of the universal thing that it tapped into was it's the question of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And but what I mean by authenticity, okay, on the superficial nature, we have this worry about our work and oh, is it authentic? Is it an AI generated imagery? What you know, what you're what you're showing is that it's well, the authenticity is is 
the human is completely present within the interaction with yes. the process. It's a dynamism. It's as existent as anything else that yeah. exists in society. But I wonder whether the sort of the outrage part, because you've got the curiosity and you've got the fear and all the rest of it. But I wonder if the that what what you've summoned up, the sort of demon you've summoned up, is a deeper demon that we have within ourselves at this point in time. Because when you think about sort of like the digital world. And this is this predates AI. You have in it's that sort of like um, Jean Baudrillard idea of a simulacrum. So you have yourself, and then you make a replication of yourself into the digital sphere, and then that version of you, you're like, oh, I'm going to make it a bit better than I am. So I'm going to have this self that's online that's a bit better than I am, and then that becomes quite addictive and fun. And then you start replicating that across different platforms, mm-hmm. something that does not represent the origin. So it's it's disconnected from the original referent, and it's become something in and of itself. But then it becomes so real and so sort of ubiquitous that the original referent is like, I've lost control of this. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly there is a disconnection between the authenticity and the inauthenticity. And I think when you sort of look at why people are s- um, struggling so much psychologically online, especially teenagers, often, well, if you look at celebrities, they have disconnected the referent of who they are mm-hmm. is existing in millions of people. And they're trying to uphold this sort of carcass of a notion of themselves that's completely perfected and false, and it leads to absolutely terrible consequences on the mind. And I think something in your work, it, it feels like you've they've summoned up this, this fear we have because we don't know who we, who we are on some level because we are also so distracted by the ubiquity of social media and posts and the ping-pongs and the notifications and the bleeps and all of the rest mm-hmm. of it that we can't we can't concentrate to a degree where we can have that foundational notion of what we are for, like yeah. you were talking earlier about between good and evil, beyond good and evil, all of these things. Why my heart was like, why my whole sense of being was deepening when you were speaking. So I was like, man, this man is creating this debate, which is the most profound debate. And yet, why is it you yeah. that is prom- that is that is stimulating this? And I'm like, I would... I would venture and say, because I think you have as deeper understanding of the human condition, I think, as anyone I've ever met, Boris, or as much of, you know, it's not a scale. And so I, I, I feel like something has been, has been um, pulled up like a reverse exorcism. I see two things that are very important here. One is um, uh, the notion of creativity. Mm-hmm. Is that something... That is uniquely human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do we need to save this for us? What is creativity? <laughs> and the second thing is, um, why do we really want to create artificial intelligence? I don't think we will be able to stop until we have managed it. Mm-hmm. It seems to be an unconscious drive that we want to be like God in the Old Testament and create something that is a resemblance to us. Mm-hmm. That will not stop. And if you look back into um, the narrations and stories of mankind across cultures and times, it is one of the leading narratives. Yeah, If you talk about the golem or Frankenstein or the sorcerer's apprentice, mm-hmm. humans invent something and then it gets out of control. The fear of the creation. That has always been like uh, attached to our creations. And then the same thing is 
Why do we create in the first place if things can go out of control? <laughs> but I think we cannot stop this development until we get as mankind to a point where we manage to get some, create something that is more or less as potent intelligence like us. At the same time, then we are afraid, yeah, and we project our condition into the machine. We are good and bad at the same time. So of course, the machine, if it gets a consciousness that resembles us, will also be mean <laughs> and <laughs> evil and come to the point where it's going to erase us. I think that is just a projection. Yeah. And the second thing about creativity, is it really human? Can um, a machine replace it? And that is the fear of many creatives, that they are not needed anymore. Mm-hmm. So let's play this out. So, okay, on the one hand, you've got the paper maximizer theory where AI is creating so many damn paper clips mm-hmm. that we are made into yeah. paper clips. Good luck with that, by the way, Boris. Um, <laughs> um, but if you play it out, mm-hmm. just on a philosophical level, it's like, well, okay, we are creating something that is, we are biologically bound. We, are, we have fantastic brains, but we're still bound by that neural network. And the climate is changing. Mm-hmm. We have already, you know, we are entering an age of solitude where we have destroyed many of the larger mammals. And now it's going down into insects like bees, which are suffering from human beings. This unknowable tragedy. And you can look at it as tragedy or you can just look at it at that it is. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a different type of thing. But what I mean is that if you play it out, going cosmically, maybe our only potential future destination is to go out into space, but we know how large space is. So surely we have to, we have to overcome our biological limits. And that might mean sacrificing that which we were to become that which we are. And that might mean that, that I mean, we will always be the, the godfather or mother or god of, uh, create, of, of AI. And it very may well be what future species out in space come across. Or maybe it is AI that eventually populates space and becomes the aliens that we wish that we could find. And then they replicate into type of different things. But like, could, could you see it playing out that way? Do you think there's, there's like on a cosmic level, do you think this is an inevitability of creation that it should get to this point or, or a celebration of creation? What we have now is not a conscious machine. Yeah? Yet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is all mathematics and probability. Mm-hmm. So do you think it will become conscious then? I have no clue. <laughs> no, it can happen. Yeah? yeah, it might happen. I might be dead by the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no clue. It could be possible. I think we really want this to happen. And do you, so you think subliminally we want it yes. to happen? Yeah, I think it is going to happen if it's happening in five years, 50 years, 500 years, I don't know. Do you think that's just because it's too exciting to damn well be able to play God and see what happens? Like, do you think it's a megalomaniac thing in mankind? Maybe, yeah. Maybe uh, good old Freud was right, yeah, that we have an, an Eros and Thanatos drive, which is like old school psychology nobody believes in that anymore but as a philosophical idea it's fascinating and it is yeah well if we have this drive to um to die yeah and the same time we have to the drive to procreate (laughs) create it's two sides Mm -hmm. yeah and how can they uh cooperate or are they fighting against each other 
um, life and death forever at war with one another? Maybe, maybe not. It, it always depends on how you look at the human condition. And the, 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 the basis question is, what do you think is man by nature good, by nature bad, or both? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and just from those assumptions, you can build whole theories of how a state should be structured, of how a society should be structured. Mm -hmm. But they are all assumptions. Well, what I draw from the, the paper clip Maximizer mm -hmm. Theory is that if, if you are... Okay, you've got two choices if you're an engineer creating AI. Well, mm -hmm. either you do not implement any type of... You just trust the code and see where it leads. And perhaps that leads to a perfected notion... Um, form of code, yeah. whatever that may be, I'm not speculating yeah. on that. But alternatively, and this is one of the interesting things I find about the AI debate, okay, how are we going to regulate it? How are we going to put in ethics into it? How are we going to try and train morality, morality into it? And it's like, well, good luck with that, mate. Have you seen what human beings have done to each other since, <laughs> since we became this species and probably before? It's... Um, it's, it's, I mean, the only thing that makes, that chills me more about than the indifference of creating infinite paper clips, or, you know, or, or rather the indifference of that, yeah. that way, is trying to put human morality into it. It's like, damn, man, you can't be careful with that. Yeah, but which one? Yeah. Well, is is in which, which, which morality? Well, that's the, the point. The problem starts. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> If you talk about morality that comes from Morris Morris, um, it just means what people do, like habits, customs. <laughs> it's not a set of values. Yeah? It's just like, which people are we looking at? How do they behave? That is morality. And the ticking time bomb that every morality has with the next morality yeah. before it starts clashing with it. Um. <laughs> Well, look for us. I, I, no, I, 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 I love, but we have so many ticking time bombs. <laughs> well, well, you created a ticking time bomb, so no. I would say that Boris L. Dagson is as guilty as anyone. I, I created nothing <laughs> of the AI we have. What my aim is, is to pass on knowledge and to create awareness and to show the complexity of it. Mm -hmm. the, the closer, I, the deeper I look into it, the more I realize, mm -hmm. like also with morality, it's all great. It's very hard to say you are the good guys, you are the bad guys. And, and I was, of course, teasing because that's why I was so hopeful to speak with yeah. you at this moment because it just raises the, the questions of... So, it's so multi-dimensional and multicolored. It's kaleidoscopic. It goes into every single yeah. aspect of human consciousness. And it takes someone, I think, who is an artist and a philosopher to prompt the society to start looking at the prompts that we are putting into it. And it, it, one of the things that I find sort of interesting about the AI, just to briefly ask you about the potential impacts on a sort of moral level, and especially about, okay, the people that have that, that are following the maths and working on the code. Um, so obviously the Oppenheimer movie is mm -hmm. coming out. And I watched this interview of Oppenheimer being asked about the atomic bomb. And it's, it's absolutely 
I mean, it just it sort of makes your your heart curdle because you know, unlike say Nixon, who was sort of very defiant about sort of some of his you know, crimes, or however you wanted to put it, because of course that's a loaded way of of talking about Oppenheimer in a wrong way. So I wouldn't put that across. But he was there, and he was so connected to both that which he'd created and that which it had done, and as well as. I think kind of torn apart by there being no safe footing in the morality. Uh, there was the, it, it's the, there's the abomination that it happened, that it could ever be, that a bomb could ever be put over anyone. I mean, it, it, and then they're weighing it up next to the millions of lives that are going to die one by one during the Second World War if you play out the scenario. So they're basically... They have two different models they're following, terrible as it is to describe it, but that's what was happening. Mm -hmm. And then he comes to the end of the interview and he quotes the Bhagavad Gita and he says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And yet when they were creating it, they were following the, and he did talk about this, I think in a different time, the, the, the excitement of the math, you know, the excitement of, being on the pursuit and having the funds to kind of do what even Einstein said couldn't be done. What responsibilities do you think the AI engineers have who are following the maths? I think to to, um, communicate the the dangers as they see them and to join forces to think together what they could do to prevent certain things. But then you have certain approaches. Like uh, if you talk to Bjorn Omar, who is the head of the developer group who did Stable Diffusion, he said, it's not dangerous. The dangerous part is um, social media. And he said we go open source because it can't be exploited by the big companies. We invite the scientists to contribute and we work together. Whereas the models of open AI financed by Microsoft is a black box. We don't know how it works, what is inside. It's a business secret. Um, And that reassured you no, I'm not a I'm not a programmer. I, I, I I'm I'm listening. I try to learn. I've I've uh, tried to figure out how it works. I think I have done it. If it's dangerous, uh, what are the dangers? I don't know. For me, it's uh, mathematical probabilities. Um, that is what I can say. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also believe it can't be stopped. Like even if you have like half of them saying we need to stop now and to think about it, mm-hmm. the other half would continue. Yeah, and look on Elon Musk. He said we need to stop. He was one of the founders of OpenAI. Then got out. Mm-hmm. Did he stop? No. He just opened his own AI business recently. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't stop it. <laughs> the addiction. Yeah, and if you talk about Oppenheimer, I grew up with uh, German Swiss literature. Dürrenmatt. Do you know the physicist, the physicians? Mm-hmm. No, I don't. Not a physician. The, 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 what is physica in, in English? Uh, physics. Yeah, you would say physics. Yes. So what, it, it, it plays in a madhouse. <laughs> and you think, who are those people? And later it turns out uh, 
they are all scientists that decided to play mad. So they end, are locked <laughs> behind bars so their knowledge can't be exploited. Yeah, that, that is like... Uh, <laughs> Wow. It's a 60s, late 60s, early 70s book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. wow. Lock up the geniuses. <laughs> no, they lock themselves up. Oh, they lock themselves up, I see. No, wow. they, they, they don't yeah. say you need to stop. They just say our knowledge is dangerous. We want to keep it by ourselves. What is the safest plan? We play mad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so just to talk about the impact on younger artists for a mm -hmm. moment. Um, specifically, so after the recent developments, there's been, I'd seen sort of a heartbreaking YouTube videos of artists who have trained for years who are like, mm -hmm. they, this machine can do what I've been training for 10 years to do, or artists who have just come out of university who have been, who've spent their young life learning through this design. And I, of of course, one feels an automatic empathy with 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 that, yeah. and um, and one of the quotations which I read about you, which I found very powerful, and this is what I wanted to ask you about about okay, what would be your guidance to those younger artists? Um, and I, I find this this fascinating quote: "You need to be aware of um, you need to be aware and of the possibilities to learn how to survive it." I think I'm mishmashing mm -hmm. your quote but to, you, you need to be aware of it yeah. and to learn how to survive it and so i'm just wondering like mm -hmm. with the sort of the young artists at that point because obviously what you've done is rather than being threatened by the medium you've thought you've used all you know you're, you're an older artist you have all those years of experience you also had a life experience which also was part of i think you're the type of artist that would have played with it anyway but you could draw upon years and years of knowledge of being open to things because I think once you become to a certain age or of experience in the arts, you get to that openness that is like beyond yeah. itself. And when you're starting out, you're limiting yourself because you're just trying to figure out, okay, rent and how to get your work out and where am I going to get out? But to those people who are feeling this sense of tragedy or loss, what would be your message, your guidance to them? Connect with the reason why they started to produce artwork and um, what can be replaced is everything that um, has no materiality. Like a painter will never be threatened by AI. <laughs> you can copy a painting but in the end, it's a digital file. Mm -hmm. And you can print it and you will feel by the materiality, it's not a painting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, You're missing the smell. Mm -hmm. uh, the photographs are threatened because with digital photography, at the end, it's a file and it's printed on the same paper, uh, like you can print AI-generated images. So it's the, the medium of art we are talking about. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are safer than others. And also, um, it's very important to realize that it creates new freedom. I just mm -hmm. love to work with it because I have no material restrictions anymore. Mm -hmm. And I always had material restrictions. I always had a problem. Where do I find models that are willing to do the crazy things I would like them to do? Mm -hmm. Is it dark or, or light outside? Is it too cold? 
Um, all of this doesn't matter. I can work out of my imagination. Yes, I have an advantage. This is what I like about it, um, that um, you can bring your knowledge of image making into the process and make a difference. With 20, yeah, you don't have it. Mm-hmm. But you still have ideas and visions. And yeah. I had ideas when I was 20 that I could not put into photography. Mm-hmm. I could put some of them into drawing. But um, I had the drive and the energy. I wanted to create those images. And if you have the drive and the energy, I think you can play with those tools. Mm-hmm. And the tools are going to become more and more and more and more. So don't wait <laughs> to um, understand it. Because the longer you wait, the more you have to keep up on. Thank you for that, Boris. I'd I'd like to also just add a personal reflection there. Because when I was starting out in music, 2002, 2003, and it was completely concurrent with Napster and Mm. with file sharing and the the no industry ever tanked like the music industry right at the point where I was setting out. And so I had to go through this you know this this kind of catastrophe in the industry while also just witnessing rather than this community spirit in the arts it was like all of the artists all of the bands were fighting for the relics out of the major labels and it was a pretty awful thing because the kind of community didn't sort of help itself this is back when i was in london and that was one of the things that triggered me to come over to berlin because i was like I think similar to you, I realized I am going to do this irrespective of society and the gods and what happens to be happening. I felt like I had something that I needed to get out, Mm -hmm. that demon, if you like. And so I came over to Berlin. I was like, I'm just going to go so deep into the underground and I'm just going to trust into into that process. And I've gone through my ups and downs in music and I... But the thing that has fascinated me is that that which I set out to do never happened in the way that I set out to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And everything that happened in my life that makes sense and that has made me whoever I am today and has brought me the life that I'm within today has come almost exclusively out of what the musical path hasn't given me as a Mm -hmm. result of having to work through the edges. So why I say a personal reflection there, it's more just if there was a younger artist who is in that sort of state of fear or anxiety about it, it's just to say, I really resonate with the advice that you gave. It's about embrace the world, embrace that path and embrace who you are and just damn well trust in it because it will lead you somewhere. You just don't know where it will. Yeah, and, and also if you have uh, disparate interests. yeah, I had many different ways that I was working and forms, and I thought, how can I make this become one? It happens naturally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even if you need to, to do different jobs, yeah, to, to pay the rent, again, this is going to bring you new skills, mm-hmm. and at some moment in time, you can use it. And when I had the uh, media inquiries um, after the, the refusal, it was like I could use all of things I have done in my life. Mm-hmm. I have been teaching for 20 years. I have been creating art for 30 years. I worked as a freelancer in the digital industry. I could use it. Mm-hmm. Suddenly I said, I'm ready. If you want me 
to talk live to you on BBC, let's do it. Mm -hmm. And the way you do it is you don't think how many people are going to watch. I have been doing online talks for Deutsche Fotografische Akademie for years. They are like 50, 80 people watching live. And so when I was talking to the media, it was like this. <laughs> it was the same interface, my laptop, and I didn't think about the people watching. I had one person mm -hmm. that I was talking to. Mm -hmm. And we had a conversation. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about the potential of yeah, the, the reach and the people that watch it, you're turning crazy. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that I also draw upon from your path is that when you got to Australia and you went broke, yeah. you had to apply for jobs that you probably weren't necessarily planning on doing. I mean, it's yeah. wonderful that you that that you em, em, embraced it. But it but what lecturing? Obviously, you know you have you, yeah. you, you, you you've been interested in philosophy and you're a bright man and the rest of it. But the lecturing formulates the ideas in a communicable yeah. way, and there's a sort of superpower through making the journey and the effort to communicate your yeah. ideas. So when that moment happened in your life, well, it wasn't an accident that the interest happened, but it was also that you were able to communicate yes. the ideas in such a transportable way yeah. that could lead it. And so, the, you know, you said, well, I've no interest in, in being a leader. Well, that's why you became the leader that you are on the debate, because You've worked on that through a lifetime to yeah. get to that eloquence and that understanding. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, who knows how things make sense? But I, I see, yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't want to try and make sense of it. But I see the story there. It's, it, it's all connected. Uh, the only way for me to combine philosophy and uh, visual arts in one study was to have a teaching degree. Mm -hmm. So I have a proper teaching degree. Mm -hmm. I could start at high school tomorrow, but I didn't want to go there. But I could use it my lifetime. When I was a student, I was co-financing myself with teaching first aid lessons for people who wanted to do a driver's license. So all of this was a training. And I think um, what you need is to have open eyes, to be open for what is happening and coming to you, and then responding and using skills you have. Mm -hmm. And Built the whole, it, it, was, it was never planned that I am becoming like uh, a newspaper was writing today. I'm the uh, poster boy of the AI debate. I'm 53. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a poster boy. It's very, very funny. Yeah. But um, it, it, I was just saying yes to people coming and, and asking me. I was basically playing around with the tools. I was posting it in social media. Then I had the first uh, guy who knew me. Would you like to give us an interview? Is this all new and fascinating? I said, yes. And then they said, would you like to make a presentation at a photo fair? I said, yes. And then I improved the presentation in December for uh, Deutsche Fotografische Akademie. We recorded it properly and that went viral in the photo scene. Mm -hmm. And then I had somebody saying, would you like to teach it? I said, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so none of that was part of my master plan, but people saw it, approached me, and I said, I can do it, I'm ready. And so it went month by month. What I find is, just, just as we come to the end, but I, I just find, I just find it so moving that there is so much inquiry in your life. There's so much pain in corners and then this, but there's always that 
internal spark of curiosity and interest that seems to be like the sort of guiding spirit, if you like. And I just find it so moving that through all of that and all of those corners where it might have made sense to pragmatically walk away or try to do something, you know, different or even, but you yeah. know, to do the teaching, that it 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 all has led into this story of where where you're at and it didn't need this moment for all of it to make sense yeah. and it as i said earlier that for me that's it's almost for me in this in this conversation it's almost like an afterthought and yeah. it's a fantastic wonderful thing but it's almost it's also a wonderful culmination because it comes out of everything and like just to finish off boris i I wondered if I like could just ask you to, you know, if you were to just really sort of say a message to the world or to the spirit or whatever the hell it is that's out there or something that might need to be said. It was just to ask you to some to draw upon some like your life to leave the audience with uh a sort of thought or prayerful moment, um, however one would describe it. Um, if you try and sum summarize something for us. Well, one thing I already said, it's fear. Yeah. <laughs> Become aware of your personal fears, where they come from, and try to work to overcome it somehow. It's going to improve your life dramatically. <laughs> for me, it is, uh, is the, the opposite of happiness is not being unhappy, it's fear. <laughs> mm -hmm. The more fear you take away, the more happy you're going to become. And I would like to thank um, the photo community. It's their work that made it big. Yeah, mm -hmm. It could have been just two posts on my social media accounts of like 20 likes and that's mm -hmm. it. But it was single photographers uh, translating my statement and interviews into their languages. Mm -hmm. And I had one guy from China who sent me, I've uh, put it up and translated your interview. The next day he said 50,000 clicks. And the next day I got uh, interview inquiry by a Chinese newspaper. So it's them and they talked and communicated. And my message is that communication is what we need. We need more communication, more transparency, more open communication. And because this is what the organizers of the uh, competition didn't want to have, uh, why it became so big and why they failed. They could have had it in the very first moment when I told them, but we're not willing to have this conversation. And then the conversation started without them, mm -hmm. but even bigger than it would have been possible my imagination and what a beautiful way to, to 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 finish and to summarize to say that it's the communication as a as a skill yeah but also to look after and to develop your community because it, that is something that, that your community is about people yeah. ultimately and because it's so easy to feel alone as an artist yeah and it's just amazing how your 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 inquiry and that hacker's attitude and that challenge to authority and to the gatekeepers of the arts yeah. Yeah. has been it resonated and it's been taken out into the world. People helped me, people that knew helped me uh, two years, uh, two, mm -hmm. two weeks ago. I was at a festival in Arles and then I met the organizers of, a, of an Asian festival. 
And they said it did work because people know you and they know that mm -hmm. you are not talking nonsense. <laughs> and uh, yes, but that took 10 years mm -hmm. <laughs> to get to know the photography world mm -hmm. and to have those contacts. And a lifetime before that as well. Yeah. Going to every corner of the earth practically. <laughs> <laughs> I did love traveling. Yes. <laughs> Boris, thank you so much because yeah. uh, just, just to finish off, like you took a moment a few days after when all the anarchy was going on. I just brought Boris just to say hello and I'm proud of yeah. you. And it always meant so much to me, just like you gave me that book. You just took a moment. So Jamie, it's, it's absolutely mental. Uh, yeah. But you just took a moment and it meant a lot to me. And it means even so much that you've come down yeah. to speak on this. And I, I just, I feel very happy and thankful. I really think this is important just to, to answer communication. I have a folder of private people that sent me messages that I haven't been able to respond to because of my workload, mm -hmm. but I'm going to do this over summer. Yeah, I don't want those yeah. emails to be unresponded. Mm -hmm. We'll look after you along the way, Boris. Uh, Thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you, man. What a great conversation. We need, need more of those conversations. Just feel so moved to yeah. have been able to, you know, because it's just like, it's so much on my, there's so much that I learned through it about how to be. Um, and because you're always learning and it's just like, you know, you're, you're 10 years down the line or whatever it is, a bit older than me. And, and it's just, you know, I'm always learning and figuring stuff out and it's just to go that deep into that path and also just to check in with mortality. That really resonated so much yeah. and the people that you've lost along the way. It was like, you know, I, I just find the fact that you weren't, you, you, you're daring not to hide that that's there's so much knowledge no, but we, we, yeah, we, but we no, all, I know, we all I, I share know, it. But, but, yeah, and yeah. It shows that there is a limit to all of things we do. Mm -hmm. We're just going to dive back in for a second because we just had such an interesting chat immediately afterwards. And Boris, the pandemic hit, right? Let's, I don't know if you want to call it an existential crisis of the soul, but something happened to you. Like what, what happened to you when the pandemic hit? Where did you go? I talked about it briefly before. I had a long-term friend who had a brain cancer and then wanted uh, to die in Switzerland. And... Uh, I went there with uh, another friend mm -hmm. and uh, there's nothing that can you prepare for this. Yeah, How do you have a last supper? How do you have a last breakfast? And what do you do when somebody who is as old as you just dies in your arms? How does it look like? Mm -hmm. It's weird. Yeah, It is really that um, within seconds, um, the pulse is gone and then the color of your face is changing and you realize your friend is no more and it goes like this and i had a similar experience when i was 30 with my father dying at home that is really existential and then i turned 50 and i thought um is this it yeah, my friend is dead he doesn't come back i'm old now i might die as well soon who knows and was it worth to invest my time being an artist, trying to make a difference, achieve something? And um, I was um, part of a community, but in a niche. And then you think, 
And of course, you say, sometimes you say, tell yourself, um, maybe it was all just a waste of time. Yeah. And maybe I should have um, started a family. But at the same time, and these inner conversations are really important, you realize, no, <laughs> this, this is what I wanted. And then you realize, this is where I get my energy from. And there was no other option that would have made me happier mm -hmm. yeah so even if i was unhappy and in the, the second midlife crisis um, I, I said this is what i wanted and i'm going to continue but it is a sisyphus work and of course it is exhausting over and over again mm -hmm. even now i have moments where it is exhausting and tiring but at the same time, it's beautiful and rewarding. And you continue. And everything I said before is taking care of yourself um, remains important. Did I miss anything about the conversation we had privately? <laughs> no, it's, it, it, it's just, I think the, I think this is such a powerful question. An artist at this point in their life having the that night of the soul where one asks was it worth it what was was the sacrifice worth it and it, i mean it's it hit me very hard when he said well I, I didn't have children like was 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 that what i really wanted is this it is this the the reward of the sacrifice where's the fucking reward and I think as an older artist, you know that space. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about, I understand it as an artist in my, my 40s because I have had similar nights and you know, I've worked very hard at my mental health and I've, I've stared deep into the lagoon of those thoughts and I'm with them and I'm present with them and I'm capable of sitting with them. And I'm okay as well, like I, I with 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 my choices. But hell, on those nights on the soul when it's dark and there is nothing else there, and you have that experience of that aloneness, it can come in like a demon with saber teeth into you. And that's the dread as well yeah. when you're a younger artist, because it's like, I do not want to be that potential. Yeah. And one of the things that you have to learn along the path is that you may find yourself there. Are you ready? Do you Are you serious enough about that that you're doing that you can be there yeah. and you have to be deadly serious about your work? It can change, but it can continue like this, that people have no interest. I was doing my night photography for 10 years because I just loved doing it and nobody was interested in. And then 10 years ago when I started to be part of that portfolio review photography community, uh, there were German curators who said, why don't I know this? <laughs> and I said, well, nobody cared. It was like you are put on an, on an island somewhere in nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, and you are alone. And of course, you just do things and, and uh, do whatever that comes to your mind. And 10 years later, a boat drives by and picks you up and thinks, Look at that crazy person and all the stuff he was building on that island. Yeah. But that was my feeling when, when after 10 years of photographing, I had the first interest in my photography. 
and I still there is no um, guarantee that there is going to be an interest in my artwork in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still giving a hundred percent. Those trends come and go. Mm-hmm. I continue to do what I do, mm-hmm. and I do it because I need to do it. Mm-hmm. But I think also those times where you think nobody cares what I do. Uh, is it worth investing all the time and money? They are natural. They are, mm-hmm. I think, an important part of it as a, a grounding to get deeper. And that is also going to change your artwork as well. Yeah. It feeds back. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, the reward is the knowledge that comes out of the path. Yeah. And because with the knowledge, comes i think two things one is the appreciation of the thing itself and the thing itself is life love being within that and the second thing is the passing on of how of of, of everything all the knowledge and the insight that you accrue and knowing that you can alleviate someone else's suffering or doubt or or pain but also to inspire because those moments when you have those dark nights of the soul, they aren't the ending. No. They are they are just a part of the pattern along yeah. the way. And it's like every time I think that I have to return to one of those places, I often think it's because life has readied me to go deeper into yeah. that space and that I'm I'm more prepared to delve into it. And I'm also I, on a metaphorical level, I no longer think about kind of climbing out of that hell i think about like like deepening like like getting into the river of life like you get a pickaxe and you start smashing the hell out of it because below it it's not about climbing out of hell it's about the the, that there's something beneath it and then that's where the real excitement happens beyond good and evil pain and suffering just the capacity to be and be within the wonder Um, which is i think why you gave me this book all those years ago because it it, it adds to that. You needed it. I had to, and uh, I knew that you would love it, mm-hmm. and that it might give you some consolation, and it did. And it, and it has done <laughs> as our friendship, which yeah. is this is just a another um, island along the way. Thank you, Boris. No, thank you. Okay, that's the end of the second ending, ladies and gentlemen. But if we're going to be with Boris L. Dagson, there will be no ending. <laughs> oh, thank you, guys. Oh. Yay. I'm really glad. I, I don't like reshoots. but oh, some- <laughs> My story was... Uh, okay, hold on, Boris. You get again? You get again? <laughs> yeah, you want me to, to start again? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and when I was teaching in Australia, they had on Wednesday mornings talks of international artists um, coming, talking about their work and their life, and they were always success stories. Yeah, They had been discovered early in their lives, in their mid-20s, and then they went everywhere, and now they are famous and have famous friends. And I did my talk about failures. <laughs> I was talking about the, the, the moments in my life where the career went downhill, <laughs> And continuing, and that actually made a difference to the students. And they said, I'm so happy to hear this, yeah, because mm-hmm. if you compare yourself to those success stories, how can you differ to it? Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that my professor was 
One thing that my professor was doing badly is, oh, I, I switched off with my spine. Um, he told us, you need to uh, be successful until you are 35. After that, it's over. Really? Yes. Then you've <laughs> just moved it. And of course, the... the, 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 the Damn, man! The main, <laughs> the main success story, they're not young artists anymore, is you, you are going to an art school and it's famous, you have a famous professor, they get in the people and the connections and then you are discovered mm. in your mid-twenties. And then if you are part of that circle, you will just move up. But if you are not part of this elite uh, art school, if you don't have the connections, you're just fucked. Mm. Yeah. What is plan B? You need to move you up through luck. You need to hang out at the openings. And at some point you realize I'm not a young artist more anymore who is going to discover me. And these are like the, the guidelines that kind of exist still. And I did like Roger Bellin as an artist, as a photographer. He became successful in his late 40s. He's now an uncle for me. And I have been working for him in the past years. And he is somebody I learned a lot from. Um, also that it is possible to have different paths, to create a body of work that at a certain age is just right. And people see it and acknowledge it. And then there is a, like a normal way how to do it, which is always easier. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, it is important to tell stories of failures. We all have them, but we don't share it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And social media kind of taught us <laughs> to be perfect all the time mm -hmm. and to tell success stories. Yeah. My experience is whenever I was sharing failure, you get much better, stronger responses mm -hmm. than just telling, hey, yeah, I'm in the Guardian. Hey, I'm here. Yeah. Yes, that can happen, but um, yeah, it happens. And then <laughs> there's a next day and the next week and the next month and nobody cares anymore. That can happen too. Mm -hmm. Or you continue to grow mm -hmm. into what direction. It is luck. It is persistence. And it is um, keeping yourself motivated and driven. And one last sentence, and we can finish on this, is uh, something I had to thank my father for. <laughs> my mom was the person with having like the, the calendars on the wall with all the sayings, yeah, for what is this about. And then I, when I was uh, leaving home, starting as a student, he was writing by hand um, a, a quote on a piece of paper <laughs> and giving it to me. He had never done anything like this before. And he said, uh, talent is not the most important thing, it is persistence. And I think that really helped me through the years, being mm -hmm. reminded of that, also realizing how many of my friends just gave it up, right? dropped out, and they changed professions. And I thought, well, maybe I just need to get old enough to be a survivor <laughs> to be seen. <laughs> it kind of happened. <laughs> wow, and to link back to your the your dad's note. Yeah. Cut. <laughs> or we are going to have a fourth. <laughs> Just to say it's not the success or the failure, it's the growth. That was one thing you said. Yes. Not the success, not the failure, but the growth. And the other thing being it's about 
the persistence as a life idea, yeah. not as a day-to-day idea. Yeah. yeah, I truly believe in failing forward. Yeah, failing forward. Amen, Boris Eldaxon.